That brings us to chapter 17, verse 7. God is now going to give the reason for this. Why in the world did God allow this to happen to his people? Now first, let me say this. The text isn't going to speak to this issue. But Deuteronomy chapter 27, God, well, in Deuteronomy, God basically command the Israelites to go in and exterminate all the Canaanites. Now, we've already gone through that in the book of Joshua. Why did God do that to the Canaanites? And basically, it was their horrible, gross sins. And that their, their blatant, blatant sin and rebellion against God. And not only were they doing horribly evil things, morally speaking, against God and other people around them, but remember, for over 400 years, God gave them warnings of the coming judgment through many, many, many prophets. And only Rahab and her family really joined the Abrahamic covenant when they came in and did the conquest. So God made it very clear, I'm judging you for your sins, I'm only punishing you for your sins, and I'm going to give you hundreds of prophets over hundreds of years for a chance to repent. And no one did, except for a small group, which means that shows how evil they really are. Just like in the flood generation, he gave them 120 years to repent and nobody did. That shows you how evil they are. So that's what he detailed out. In chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, going into chapter 28, God gives the blessings and the cursings for Israel if they obey the law and if they do not obey the law. And one of the things that he does is he gives an escalation of punishments. First, I will just not allow your crops to produce a bountiful grain if you disobey me. If you keep disobeying me and don't repent me, repent, I'll bring famine. If you continue to do this, I'll allow people to oppress you. Come in, invade your land, and oppress you. The book of Judges. If you continue not to repent, then there will be war and bloodshed and massacre, and your people will be sold in slavery, that kind of stuff. If you continue not to repent, I'll take you into exile. So he's clearly laid out for them in the book of Deuteronomy what will happen if they don't obey. He's clearly laid out in the law what obedience looks like. It's clearly laid out in the Torah, how can one be obedient, and it's by going to God. So he has given them everything they need for success. He has told them how, what it is to be obedient, what it looks like, what is righteousness, how does one become obedient through a relationship with God, and what will happen to you if you're obedient, and what will happen if you're not obedient. And everything is there that they need. But they go off. And the other thing he tells them is, if you commit the same sin as the Canaanites, I will do the same thing I did to Egypt and I did to the Canaanites, to you. God makes it very clear to Israel, I am not playing favorites. I am not killing one people because they're a different ethnicity than another, or I like them better than another. I am doing this because of their sin. And if you do the same thing that Egypt did, and you do the same thing the Canaanites do, especially since you have the law and they didn't, and you have given the means to be obedient with me and your country, and they didn't, then I will do the same thing that I did to them, because I am a just God, and I do not play favorites. And just like with the Canaanites, they begin to sin right off the bat. In 1400s, they begin to sin and rebel. And now it's 700s. It has been 700 years, and he has sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them of what's coming, and yet they have not repented. And many of you said, there's no way God would do that to us. And they've even trusted other gods. 
this is clear at this point that God is absolutely just in what he's doing, especially when they've become worse than the Canaanites. He is absolutely just in what he's doing. Now, the question of how can God use the Assyrians to do this to the Israel is one, God can use whatever in creation he wants. Because whether it's a flood or a plague or an army, they're all created by him and they all belong to him. The other answer that he's going to give is in the prophets. The prophets will answer this question of why God is using the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and how he can do this. So we'll have to wait for that. So chapter 17, verse 7, the, 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 the author of Kings gives a historical theological reason for why God is doing this, where the prophets are going to give a poetic theological reason for why this is happening. Verse 7, this happened because the Israelites sinned against Yahweh their God, who brought them up from the land of Egypt and freed them from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They observed the practices of the nations whom Yahweh had driven out before Israel and followed the example of the kings of Israel. The Israelites said things about Yahweh their God that were not right. They built up high places in all their cities, from the watchtower to the fortresses. They set up sacred pillars and asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. They burned incense on all the high places, just like the nations whom Yahweh had driven away from before them, just like the Canaanites. Their evil practices made Yahweh angry. They worshipped the disgusting idols in blatant disregard of Yahweh's command. Yahweh solemnly warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and all the seers, also known as prophets or sages, turn back from your evil ways, obey my commandments and rules that are recorded in the law. I ordered your ancestor to keep this law and sent my servants, the prophets, to remind you of its demands. But they did not pay attention, and they were stubborn as their ancestors and had not trusted Yahweh their God. They rejected his rules, the covenant he had made with their ancestors, and the laws that he had commanded them to obey. They paid allegiance to the worthless idols and so became worthless to Yahweh. They copied the practices of the surrounding nations and blatant disregard of Yahweh's command. They abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God. They made two metal calves on the Asherah pole and an Asherah pole bowed down to all the starry hosts of the sky. Now remember, starry host is another word for the Elohim, or the sons of God, or the angels, however you want to call them. So they're worshiping all the stars, all the planets, all the Elohim, all the false gods. They worship Baal. They pass their sons and daughters through the fire. That's child sacrifice. They practice divination and omen reading, going to other gods for answers to the life rather than Yahweh. They committed themselves to doing evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they made him angry. So Yahweh was furious with Israel, and he rejected them. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Judah also failed to keep the commandments of Yahweh their God. They followed Israel's example. So Yahweh rejected all of Israel's descendants. He humiliated them and handed them over to robbers until he had thrown them into the pre- thrown them from his presence. He tore Israel away from David's dynasty, and Jeroboam's son Nabat became their king. Jeroboam drove Israel away from Yahweh and encouraged them to commit a serious sin. 
The Israelites followed in the sinful ways of Jeroboam's son to bat and did not repudiate them. Finally, Yahweh rejected Israel just as he had warned he would do in Deuteronomy. Through all of his servants, the prophets, Israel was deported from its land to Assyria and remains there to this very day. Now remember the author of Kings is writing during the exile. So the main emphasis that keeps getting repeated over and over again in this section here is the constant lack of obedience to the covenant law and how God had saved them from Egypt. What God had done for them was unique and that they failed to obey God. Over and over and over again, they failed to obey. He gives three general wrongs for why God deported them. They sinned against Yahweh, who had chosen them and delivered them from Egypt. They took up the idolatrous practices of the nations around them, and they walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. What he's saying is that you rejected the God who saved you, who loved you and blessed you when no other God did. That's a relational sin. Second, you worshiped the idols of the land. You went after the pagan gods' idols. You went after the pagan practices, the ways that they do things. That's a moral and relational sin. And then you adopted the practice of the kings who led you. The kings invented new gods and brought in new practices. And you followed these leaders as well. So both externally and internally, you adopted the sins of the nations around you. Once he lists those three general sins, then he begins to catalog all the very specific things that they begin to do. Now, he doesn't get as specific as the prophets will. Amos will probably get more specific than anybody of exactly what they have done. Here's the very powerful statement. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15, it says that they followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. Now, this is a powerful, powerful theological statement on the identity of humans. Over and over again, at different times, as I've taught these books of the Bible, I have made the point that you can never become greater than the thing that you worship. If you're bowing down to something and worshiping it, if you're submitting to something, you cannot become equal to or greater than that thing. So if you're bowing down to these gods, and these gods are jacked up, immoral, selfish gods, then you cannot become greater than that. You cannot become equal to that, and you cannot become greater than that. When you submit or follow somebody, this is why we tell our children not to hang out with those people over there, okay? Because you can't become better than them when you're constantly hanging out with them all the time and, and, and admiring them and wanting to be like them. This is why it's important to find somebody who's discipling you at the same time you're discipling somebody else. That's somebody who's further along than you, has a better relationship with God, has more experience, that kind of stuff, who you can look up to and follow and be discipled by so that you can actually achieve a higher status, a higher level of righteousness, that's a better way of saying it, than what you are now. And the devotions with God. So if you worship the unlimited, unfathomable God of the entire universe, 
then there is no limit to what God can lift you up in and who you are in your identity and self-worth. And you find your greatest self-worth and identity and worshiping the greatest thing that there is in the whole universe. But when you worship things that are worthless and have no value and have no meaning or purpose, then you will become worthless yourself. And that is a very powerful statement on identity. And this is the one thing I try to communicate to my students is that the things that they pursue are the things that they're going to become. It's kind of that way of you are what you eat. It's more of, it's like, so let's take this as a metaphor, (laughs) okay? The things that you pursue the most will become the thing that you are. And the question is, as you watch movies, and movies make fun of everybody, (laughs) and you watch how these people who are addicted to video games are portrayed in movies living in their mom's basements with no productive jobs, or people who drop out of school, or people who pursue drugs, do you really want to be known as that? Do you, do you really want your identity to be found completely wrapped up in that? And it's the same thing. As adults today, yeah, we're like, ah, I don't do that. But we're just as guilty of Netflix binging as adults. And I'm not saying every one of you, but adults binge on TV shows a lot. There's sports that we're addicted to. There's, there's addictive behaviors that we're involved in. And the question is, do you really want to be just known as that? Just the person who loves the Ohio State. Or just the person who does that. And that's the most robust that your life becomes. And one of the things I tell my students is one of the reasons that we pursue God and one of the reasons we get an education is not to get a good job and not to make lots of money because one, that's not the purpose of life and two, there's no guarantee that will even happen no matter what you're majoring in. But we do it so we become well, much more well-rounded so that we can become a much more interesting person that when we have conversations with people, we're able to actually have conversations on far more topics than most people, which makes us more interesting and better conversational with most, more people so that we can impact their life for Christ as we build these relationships. It also makes life more interesting for us as we explore things. And so... This is what God is basically saying here. When you pursue these things that are worthless, you yourself become worthless. And that's why we need to think very, very, very carefully about who are my gods? How have I prioritized my loves in my life? Where do I put my time and energy and money? And what do I pursue? And the amount of time and money, and effort, and thought life that I put into that pursuit. Because that will be what I will become. And that's what I'll be known as. And maybe we're not going after Baal and the golden calves today, but we are going after the new gods of America. And they don't take those names on, but they are money, control, power, sex, gossip, TV show, entertainment, friends, all those different things. Now remember, these gods, Asherah represented sex, but all represented power, and not represented war. And if you think about today, what do we pursue more than anything else? Those same things, including, and the money gives you power. 
So power, sex, and war, violence. And now in Hollywood, they'll mix all three of them together for you in movies that you can be entertained with it. The names may be different, but the gods are still the same. And we need to understand that. So God makes it very clear that this happened. Now, he then goes on and says he protected Judah. But he protected Judah because they were slightly more righteous than everybody else. And he made a covenant with David. But he also goes on and says, but Judah was also diving into those immoral practices. In chapter 18, we're going to learn about what happens with Judah and how they're just as bad. But before that, he's now going to tell you what happened to Israel now that all the Israelites are gone. The ten northern tribes, everything north of Jerusalem, all those people have been deported out of the land, and the land is now vacant. So what happened to that? Verse 24 of chapter 17. The king of Assyria brought foreigners from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Serevim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria, in place of the Israelites. So he's now telling you, oh, by the way, that he deported Israel across the world. He also deported a bunch of people in other places to Israel. So we're just swapping here. When they first moved in, they did not worship Yahweh because they didn't even know even who Yahweh was because Israel failed so miserably to be the image of God. So Yahweh sent lions among them and the lions were killing them. Now this is, this is like one of those, this is a harsh statement. We understand how God can punish a people group that have been warned over and over and over again and who know who he is. But here we get the implication that they don't know who Yahweh is, and yet he's killing them. This is another passage that shows you how sacred the land is. That even though his people have been deported, this is the promised land. And the land itself belongs to Yahweh in a unique way more than the rest of the world. Now remember, it's one of those, the whole world belongs to God, but this is his special land, his sacred land. And there is something holy, unique, and unlike anything else about this land compared to all other lands and the way that God has used it. Now, remember when Moses came to him at the burning bush, because God was there, he said, Moses, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. Well, Yahweh has been literally dwelling in this land to the Shekinah glory of God for over 700 years. So this land has really become holy. And here's the thing. I have no idea. I mean, I'm going to somewhat speak in total ignorance right now, but it's going to be based on biblical evidence. We have no idea how the metaphysical world, the spiritual realm, and the physical realm interact with each other and really affect each other. If anything that we've seen in the book of Kings is that they're, they're, they, are, they affect each other. We've seen the horses and the chariots, the guy's eyes being opened, we have seen in David's life where the horses and chariots of God were going through the trees and the trees killed more people that day than any other, the sword or anything else. We have seen over and over again the spiritual and the physical realm interacting with each other. And the two affect each other. And most scholars believe that what happens in the spiritual realm does affect what happens in the physical and vice versa. It can alter things. Just like what we do in America will affect Russia and alter things and vice versa. And we, we, we are changing other nations around the world by just the things that we do and vice versa. 
who have no idea how God dwelling there for over 700 years and all the Elohim that serve him and have been actively involved in Israel for over 700 years has actually physically affected the land or metaphysically affected the land or spiritually affected the land. But there has to be an effect that has happened. There has to be a change in its makeup. Okay, I know multiple people who walked by temples, pagan temples, and they immediately start feeling really sick because the spiritual environment is affecting them physically. We know that stress can affect us physically. Studies have shown that people who are believers, Christians, have better health than non-believers do. Not every single believer, but statistically overall. That means that being spiritually oriented towards Yahweh in a spiritual way is affecting you physically in some kind of a way. That has got to also affect the land itself, especially when God himself is there. And so this land has become sacred and so sacred that when these people wrong it, even though they are not part of the covenant and then don't really know who Yahweh is, there are consequences because they are desecrating a holy land. And that seems very foreign to us as Americans, but it's an absolute fact right here in this text. And so God is punishing them here because of this. So the king of Assyria ordered, take back one of the priests whom you deported from there. He must settle there and teach them the requirements of God of the land. Now this is powerful because the king of Assyria, Assyria who basically worships all gods, because you've got to cover all the bases that you can, because what they realize in the ancient world is gods control certain lands. And remember, your gods can't control other lands unless you conquer those lands. So the king of Assyria's God controls all this land because he conquered all that land. However, those gods are still there. And they've been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they still have a significant power over that land and the ancient pagan way of thinking. And so what he's thinking is, we're angering the gods there. Even though my God is more powerful than those gods, those gods still have like territorial things. Like the president of the United States is more powerful than any governor in America, but that doesn't mean the president of the United States can just do whatever he wants in every state and roll over the governors. They have their preferences. They have the thing, way they do things. And sometimes the governors say, forget you, we're not going along with that. Okay? And it's the same thing in the, pay, the gods. And so he's thinking, wow, the gods are really unhappy there. This isn't like, I'm going to start believing in Yahweh. It's like, let's just learn what that God's personal preferences are and teach them to those people so that my people won't die anymore. Not because I actually care about the people that I put there, but I like the taxes. And dead people don't pay taxes. So he sends them down there to start teaching them. But here's the beauty of it. You have a selfish, destructive, power-hungry God who cares less about Yahweh or the people that he put in that land. And he's just teaching them about the gods, Yahweh, because he wants taxes, and yet Yahweh is using those horribly evil, selfish ways to spread the gospel to these new people that are living in the land. These new people are going to learn about God. And the irony is that Israel failed miserably to teach the world about God, and now the Assyrian emperor is teaching them about God indirectly, so to speak. And they are learning about who Yahweh is. So the king of Assyria ordered to take back one of the priests, or read it, sorry. So one of the priests whom they had deported from Samaria went back and settled in Bethel. He taught them how to worship Yahweh. 
But each of these nations made its own gods and put them in the sh- on in the shrines on the high places and the peoples that the people of Samaria had made. Each nation did this in the cities where they lived. And the people from Babylon made Sakath Banoth, and the people from Cuth made Nergal, Nergal, and the people from Hamath made Ashhaima. The Avites made Nibaz, and the Tark and the Servites burned their sons in the fire as an offering to Adremelech and Enemelech, the gods of Servi. At that time they worshipped Yahweh, and they appointed some of their own people to serve as priests in the shrines and the high places, and they were worshipping Yahweh and at the same time serving their own gods in accordance with the practices of the nations from which they had been deported. So all they did was just add Yahweh to their collection of gods. And so they became just like the Israelites had. It sounds like on the surface, when he gives a general overview of this, that this priest teaching them about Yahweh failed miserably. Because all they did was add Yahweh worship to their collection. But remember, this is, these are generalizations. And so we don't know how there might have been a few individuals who converted. A few individuals who completely left their gods behind and did not operate that way. So we don't know. To this very day, they observe their earlier practices. They do not worship Yahweh. They do not obey the rules and regulations and law and the commandments that Yahweh gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he renamed Israel. Yahweh made an agreement with them and instructed them, You must not worship other gods. Do not bow down to them and serve them or offer their sacrifices. So he's going all the way back to the days of Moses. God made an agreement with them. Instead, you must worship Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt by his great power and military ability. Bow down to him and offer sacrifices to him. You must carefully obey all the times, the rules, all the time, rules and regulations of the law and commandments he wrote down for you. He must not worship other gods. You must never forget the agreement I made with you, and you must not worship other gods. Instead, you must worship Yahweh your God, then he will rescue you from the power of all your enemies. But they paid no attention. Instead, they observed the earlier practices. These nations are worshiping the gods and all the same time serving the idols. Their sons and grandsons do just as their fathers have done to this very day. Now, three times in chapter 17, the author goes through this. God saved you. He commanded you. He made you a covenant. He told you to obey his rules, but you didn't do it. Three times he goes through this cycle. And when we get to the prophets, he's going to go through this cycle over and over and over again. To the point that many of you, when we get done with the prophets, are going to think like, okay, God, I get the point. The prophets are extremely repetitive. And the question is, why is he saying this over and over again? Because this is the dearest and closest thing on his heart. Partly because this is the most important thing to him, and partly because they were not listening. And Deuteronomy, which is the book he keeps going back to over and over and over again, this is why this is called the Deuteronomic history, because the history is all revolving around the, the outline of Deuteronomy. He says over and over again that obedience to the Mosaic law is about a loving relationship with Yahweh. That's the main idea in Deuteronomy. I do not want you to obey me because you feel like you owe me or you're in debt. I do not want you to obey me because you're afraid of being punished. I don't want you to obey me for rewards. 
I want you to obey me because you love Yahweh with all of your heart, your life, and your muchness. Because you are so blown away by a God that saved you, redeemed you, and blessed you when no other God would. And you can't help but be in love with a God like that. And a God that no matter how many times you screw up and you sin against him and hurt other people, he still pursues you, he still forgives you, he restores you, he redeems you, and he blesses you. And no other God, no other human has ever done that, ever in your entire life, or ever will. How could you not love a God like that and want to spend time with him? We are excited about telling people about movies we've gone to. We're excited about hanging out with humans who sin against us and hurt us. How much more should we be excited about the God who is perfect, who saved us from hell? And this is the point in Deuteronomy. For God is not just you didn't do what I told you to. It's you violated a relationship with me. And this is why in the prophets he's going to use the the word adultery and a relationship with him over and over and over and over again. In the same way that you'd be destroyed and torn apart with a spouse who's had an affair, God feels the same. And this is not a God that said, I wanted you to obey me, and you didn't, and I'm angry. Think of this as a God whose spouse has had an affair and has destroyed him. And that's what he's communicating here. That's what he's communicating here. This is why they went into exile. Because basically what he's saying in the end is, You want those other gods? Fine. Go to those other gods. But when they went to those other gods, those gods did not protect them, and those gods massacred them. Remember, God gives us what we want. That's the whole point of Romans. He gave them over into their desires. This is the God that says, you want to go after those gods. You've been doing this for 700 years. Okay, I get the point now. You can have them. Go after them. And this is what their gods did to them. God allowed this to happen because they chose those gods.